0: This trial is before Pilate, the Roman officials, the Roman government. You see, in order for there to be capital punishment during this time, it had to go to Rome, okay? The Jews and the religious elite, even in their own governing system, could not prescribe death to any criminal. And so they had to bring him to Pilate, who was the governor in the area. Okay? And so that's where we pick up the story today. And the last couple weeks have been heavy, right? If you've been here there's been a lot of yelling, right? There's been a lot of um, an internal angst, I think, of myself to say, what am I doing? Like, and how am I not giving my life over? In what ways am I clinging to a certain identity that leaves Christ to the side instead of embracing fully what he's called me to? How am I still asleep, as we saw the apostles in the Garden of Gethsemane? And how am I to wake up? And a lot of that angst kind of got, honestly, kind of vomited on you guys in a way of saying, church, like, Let's wake up. There's a mission of God that we're supposed to be about. There's a way that we're supposed to live this life in response to the gospel, not because it, we earn it, right? But in response to that, there's a way that we do this as the church. And so it's time to wake up. Today I find to be kind of a welcome reprieve to all the yelling. Okay? Today I think there's a lot of celebration. Like today I, I think there's this real neat opportunity that we'll get at the end to just really be excited, to really be at peace, to really be and feel the weights of the gospel and how it washes and cleanses. Listen, every single person in this room, regardless if you understand it yet, okay, that what we're going to see Christ do today is something he did for every man, woman, and child from every background, every race, every ethnicity, every whatever in the world. Okay? And that is something to rejoice in. And so... Uh, someone said when we were first getting started this morning that it felt a little quiet and dead in here during the first few songs. My expectation of the way God's going to move in us is that the second set's going to be raucous. Okay. Because when we get a real clear picture of the work of Christ, I think the only, ex- the only expression that comes out of that is, is worship, is singing and is celebration. Amen? Okay, okay. Um, before we get into this whole thing, I want to talk about why Jesus is on trial, and I want to recap his life a little bit up to this point, okay? Just to give us a clear picture, some of you have joined us in the Mark series uh, a little bit later. We've been doing it for about 45 weeks now, and, and so maybe some of you showed up in the last 20 and you missed the whole beginning, but I want to do just kind of a brief fly overview. How did Jesus end up here? Why is this guy that is now known as the Messiah, the central figure of Christianity, why is he on trial for the third time and for the final time here? And just to recap, he was born of a virgin. This doesn't happen often. Okay? So already some significance to the guy. Then you find him at 12 years of age preaching in the synagogue. 12 years old, preaching in the synagogue to other rabbis, to other people. This guy had authority, he had gifting, he had wisdom, and he had a lot of boldness. He was baptized in the Jordan River okay, by, uh, by John the Baptist what we saw in that moment was the skies, the heavens opened up. And as Jesus is getting baptized, a dove descends from the heavens, lands on his shoulder. And then God the Father proclaims, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. So sent out with the authority of the heavenly Father, getting started. Defeats Satan in a classic game of truth or dare in the desert, okay? Satan constantly trying to catch Jesus, trying to cause him to sin, trying, him, trying to get him to stumble. Doesn't work. He started the most successful ministry of all time, drawing thousands of people, cleansing lepers, healing the sick, blind, deaf, hurting, and even on the Sabbath, mind you, raised the dead. He's casted out demons, calmed storms, claimed his authority and deity, and had the skies open again to establish all of it, with this time the Father proclaiming, this is my son, listen to him, okay? The authority of the Father saying, this is my son, this is Jesus, this is God in the flesh. Listen to what he has for you, okay? He's forgiven sinners, he's fulfilled prophecy, promoted salvation, and cleared the circus that was the temple of all its idolatry. Okay, so all of these things, right? Just Mark, essentially, 1 to Mark 14. Okay, all of this builds into this moment in Mark 15 as Jesus gets his final sentencing, you're going to die. Now, the reality is, I think when I hear the list of what Christ has done, I think and I say, that dude's amazing. Okay, he brought dead people back to life. And he, wanted no, he didn't even want any power or status from it. In fact, he does these things and then says, hey, don't go tell anybody. Right? But he, he's the friend who loans you a bunch of money and doesn't want anyone to know about it. Like, he does good thing after good thing after good thing. And yet still, he's on trial. Like, how, how does this happen? How does, how does someone as good as Christ land in this position? And so why are people so angry? And I think there's two reasons. I think one we've talked about quite a bit. I think one we've talked about a lot. And it's the idea that Jesus is in his kingdom and his will and what he's doing is really starting to threaten the lives of the people that want to do their own thing. Specifically, the religious elite, oftentimes the Roman officials, they want to do their own thing. They want to be lord of their own lives. And so Jesus comes in and says, no, I'm lord. I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. You need to come to me. And so in the midst of all this, I think there's this huge pushback to say, no, I'm going to run. I'm going to run me. Okay, I'll take care of me. And the second reason that I think there's pushback to this guy who's done so many amazing things is because at some level, I think we think, and I think they think, it's just too good to be true. I I think there's a bit where we read this story, we hear that list, and I don't know if we can truly reconcile someone as good as this, because we haven't seen a clear enough picture in this world. Because honestly, when you look to the people you came with, as great of friends as they may be, if you look to your spouse, if you look to your children, if you look to your mentor, if you look to your mentee, wherever you go, you will not see someone who adds up to Christ. And so what I think what's happened is then we hear this story. We say, so this guy did all of these things, wants no credit, and then wants to die for me. This type of idea, I think whether or not we realize it or not, is really, really hard for us to buy into. It just seems impossible. It seems too good to be true. It doesn't seem to add up in the worldviews that we've come to understand in the relationships that we have in life. And so a hope is for the Christian is that when we open up his word and we flip through and we learn and we allow the Holy Spirit to change us, what we're really doing, I think, is pulling off a bit more of the blinders to be able to see, no, it's true. Like, he is that good. He did do all of this, and he did it for me. And until we begin to remove these things, I feel like we walk around with maybe a bit of a mental ascent. We kind of get it, our minds understand, but our hearts never really arrive because we're too busy trying to compare Christ to the people around us and it never adds up. So I think it's too good to be true, often often happens that way. Okay. So begin to think about man, if this is true, that's the guy I want to be with. Right? Like that that's the guy I want to follow. If this is all true, then then that's the guy I want to be with. That's the guy that I want to follow. That's the guy that I wanted to say, okay, whatever you tell me, man, I'm going to go and do it. And I began to think about belonging. And how do we belong? How do we get invited into family? How do we get invited into this situation? And what we're going to find out today is that Jesus enables all of this through this great exchange between himself and Barabbas in the trial. But I began to think about some stories, and this one popped into my head. And I don't know how many people have ever been in an airport. Um, how many people? Just let's get there. Airport. Okay, good. How many people have not been in an airport? No. Yeah, just you. We're going. We're gonna go. Okay. <laughs> you need to see this. Um, so an airport, and the big ones. So Flagstaff doesn't count because you know <laughs> there's nothing there. Uh, but in the big airports, they have these. Uh, what are they like? These sky, like if you are a Sky Miles member or something, they have these elite lounges, okay? And if you're walking through the terminal, they're often to the side and there's beautiful glass doors and they say like elite over them. And then all the peons just kind of walk by it in hope, okay? So I've walked by that door many a time and I've seen it slide open and I've seen the beautiful rays of sunshine come through, right? And I've seen the Beautiful pastrami focaccia with tomato aioli just sitting in the distance and said, I want to be in there so bad. And so one time, me and my buddy, we were traveling around, my buddy Daniel Schmidt, good guy, we're in there and we, we walk in, and this is actually in Amsterdam. And we're in Amsterdam, we try and get into one of these little elite clubs and they say, No, you can't come in, you know, you don't have this status or whatever. As this is happening, okay? Another guy is walking out, who clearly does have the status, right? Because he's coming out, and he just looks full and happy, okay? And he says, you know what? I've got these, these two passes that only elite passengers get to have. And I want to give them to these two guys. And this is kind of, I'm paraphrasing the whole situation. And so he hands me and Daniel each a pass where we can go into this elite lounge, okay? And so he gives us, it was what his credibility that allowed for him to possess the thing that allowed for us to go in. Does that make sense? You see, we were not allowed back there because our status did not achieve a certain uh, level where we could enter. This is the way it works with Jesus. As as trivial as this story may sound, nothing you've ever done gets you into the club. Nothing we've ever done allows for us to earn access, except for the fact that one who already had it gave us the avenue with which that can happen. Jesus hands himself over that he is the passes that allow us to get access to where we'd like to be. And that happens in this moment, where he says, I'll do it, let's let the criminal go. And that's what we're going to see today, is we all get to go into elite status with the Lord. And we get to eat really tasty food, hopefully. Let's get started, verse 1. just like last week's trial, there's accusations flying around. They're coming at Christ. The only difference is now it's, uh, it's amidst kind of the Roman government, okay? It's in the Roman courtyard before the governor. One of the scenes that we don't get to see here we find in the Gospel of John. John, ha- or John tells us about this interaction that Pilate has with Jesus kind of behind the scenes, So what we read in Mark is kind of what happens outside in the open courtyard, but we get in John this vision uh, of what's going on behind the scenes, behind the walls between Pilate and Jesus in the headquarters. And I'll just paraphrase the moment. But essentially, Jesus has this discussion with Pilate, and Pilate leaves thinking, this guy's blameless. Like, this guy has not done what they are accusing him of doing. He does not deserve death. And so Pilate is walking out an advocate of Christ, Oftentimes, one-on-one interactions with the living God would do that. And so here's Pilate walking back out into the courtyard, now having had this discussion with Jesus, and now he's going to bring this trial before the people, and that's what we've got, okay? So, uh, so he does this, this kind of interaction with him before the people like we would up here and says, are you king of the Jews? And Jesus says, well, you've said so. He's talking to Pilate. He's talking to the people. He's like, yeah, you guys have called me king of the Jews. He's never actually said that label. He's never said, I am king of the Jews. It's just by his action, everything we've already talked about, he has lived out that position to a T. He said, you have said so, and they continue to go on. Then he's befuddled, and he's amazed, and he's trying to figure all this out, and he questions him and questions him. And I can just imagine the tension of the scene where Pilate, thinking that Jesus is not guilty, is like, just speak up and defend yourself. Like, like, we were just in the other room, and you made a compelling case why you don't deserve to die, but you are headed that direction. I can tell the mob they want you dead. And so I imagine just Pilate getting frustrated in this moment. Just, Jesus, what's going on, man? We just talked about this. You, you convinced me there, but now you're staying silent. And Jesus is like, what do you want? He's like, I want the truth. And Jesus says, you can't handle the truth. And that's where, we, that's where Nicholson got it. Okay. This real moment of this tension of like, listen, just defend yourself. L- listen, I, I asked us to think about this even just a week or two ago and said, like, if we had never read the Bible before, if you, if you didn't know that Jesus was about to be crucified and you were opening up this book and you're flipping through for the first time and you're reading this story, you should be, Jesus, just talk. Defend yourself. Defend yourself. But he doesn't. He, 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 just, he just stays silent. W- what are you doing? The hero is about to die. Speak up. What are you doing? The frustration the angst of the moment should not be lost on us. Verse 6. Now at the, fe- at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder and in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy. The chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. Okay. And so Pilate brings him out. And he's like, well, okay, here's what we're going to do. is you guys know, we do this every year. We call this the paschal pardon. So during every Passover, the Roman government would hand over one of the criminals of the Jewish people and say, okay, you guys essentially have him back. You Whatever pardon you want to do, that's who we will do. It says, do you want the king of the Jews? Do you want Jesus? Or do you want Barabbas? Now, here's, here's what I think was going on for Pilate. It's not that Barabbas was the only option, okay? There were other criminals that had committing acts, committed negative acts, uh, sinful acts, broken acts, uh, against both the Roman government and the Jewish people. But for some reason, it's the murderous... Insurrectionist Barabbas that's the one that gets thrown forward. And here's my theory on it. Here's my guess, okay? My guess is that Pilate's still trying to be like, but wait a minute, this isn't adding up for me. I think you're supposed to, I don't think you're guilty. I think what he does is he goes, "You know what I'll do? I'm going to say they can either have Barabbas, who is a murderous insurrectionist who has caused pain and torment amongst the people, or I'll give them Jesus, whom doves land on." Okay? Who, would, who should they pick, right? Uh, I think he's like, okay, we're going to throw these two out there, and there's no way they're going to pick this guy. Surely they'll pick Jesus. But they don't, okay? But they don't. They pick Barabbas. They, they pick the murderous, murderous insurrectionists over the Savior, Messiah of the world who has brought freedom and liberty and healing to thousands, okay? Because they were so afraid of what he might change about their lives, because they so couldn't understand and wrap their minds around something this good. And so they choose Barabbas. Just think, I mean, again, if you've never heard the story before, do you not just sit and say, what are you doing? almost fell over. What, what, what are you, you're going you're gonna to choose this guy. You're going to choose the sinner over the saint. You're going to choose brokenness over redemption. You're going to choose pain and hurt over joy and peace. This is not the consistent story of the life of every person in our world. Or consistently, we find ourselves in this constant battle where we keep choosing the things that we should not choose. Man, I, I could take the guy who gives life, or I could take the guy who gives death. Like, is, is this is not to speak? Does, this spoke to my heart this week of this man? Like, in this moment, I'm thinking, like, God, this crowd is just silly, man. Like, the, what are they doing? I would, I would, if I were there, I would never. And then I fast forward to like this morning. And I think through, oh, I made this decision, and I made this decision, and I made this decision, where consistently I have the same pattern of choosing that which is not best for me. Lord, help us. Lord, help. Lord, forgive us. Okay. This is the reality of this situation. Now, I began to think through just humanity in general, and I remember this story that popped into my head. Now, Uh, Black Friday is coming up, okay? And I don't know how many people are going to go out and shop on that day. It seems absolutely crazy. But if that's you, you know, do you. But about three years ago, there was a Walmart in Texas. So get ready, Xavier. And at this Walmart, a bunch of people showed up. They did the camp, you know, through the middle of the night type thing. And the doors opened, I think, like at 3 a.m., okay? And so you had a lot of people who had been there since early in the afternoon before, and then all of a sudden, the doors slide open, and the mob charges in, and someone gets trampled. Okay? And all of a sudden, amidst all of the craziness, there is, there's a dead human on the floor, trampled, because people are pursuing their goodies in the store. Okay? That part's not that, I mean, whatever. The craziest part, then, is that the Walmart employees tried to stop everyone. And close the store down and say, We need to get the paramedics in here to attend to this person. And the consistent shouting amidst the crowd was, But we've been here all night. I've been waiting since yesterday morning, but I need to get this for my son. Man, the heart of man is deceitful and wicked. I don't think that if we took those people and we put them in the context sitting here today that they're making terrible decisions that hate other people and love themselves. They're probably, on the whole, decent people. Most people kind of are. But you put them in this situation where all of a sudden there's this pushback and on their front door is sacrifice to themselves and then all of a sudden they are the center of the universe and do not tread on what I want. This is where man is at. And so when I come back and I apply some of the realities, and listen, that is, that's just this very small story. We look on a global scale and see what man is capable of. And this moment doesn't seem all that peculiar. Oh, man chose their best interest? Yeah, that's what we do. Lord, help us. Because it's not good. Okay. And that's where we find ourselves. Let's keep going. Verse 12. Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. So one last time, Pilate gives them an opportunity. Who do you want? Again, you, you, you you could take this guy. And he's really good. he's going to be a blessing to the people. Blessing to your lives. Or you you could choose this guy. It's going to cause problems and pain. They're like, no. Give us Barabbas. Kill Jesus. Crucify Jesus. Here's a little crazy insight into Barabbas. His name, okay? And names in the Old Testament and the New Testament throughout all of antiquity meant a lot of different things. Barabbas' name means son of the father. And so what you had before the people was two sons of the Father, right? You had Barabbas, a broken image of a son of the Father. And then you had Jesus, the truer and greater Barabbas, the true son of the Father. And they chose the wrong one. We should have saved Jesus. We should have protected the true son of the Father not the broken image of the one. But here's what I find so interesting is in the midst of people screaming, crucify him, crucify him. And my own pride of saying, I would never do that. I already said, I probably would. Like knowing the sin and knowing how my track record is of choosing things that are not great for my life, I probably would have done the same thing. But two, gosh, we needed the people to say that. You see, the reality is, and this is the heaviest part of it, is that the people that yell, crucify him, that send Jesus off to fulfill the commands and plans of the sovereign father, when they do that, they are prescribing for all of creation redemption. Because the reality is, as much as it might hurt, that if I were to cause everyone in here to start yelling, crucify him, If we were to really think through the imagery of what that moment meant for Christ, the one that we love, to be hung on a tree, the reality is that when we scream it, it's because we need it. That's the weird part for me in the midst of this, is I hate it, but I know I need it. That if he doesn't go, then I'm not here. If he doesn't go, then I'm still in my sin, and shame, and brokenness, and pain, and without God. But because of the sentence of Christ here, that's why the second set of worship this morning should be raucous, is because he does go, and he is crucified. This moment is this terrible moment in history. But it's also the moment that, shocker, God uses every tragedy to make good, including the death of his own son. And so as we sit here today, we must be a thankful people that he was crucified. Because if he wasn't, then we're all still in trouble. Okay. So we sit on this end of it and say, Lord, I, I don't know how to deal with this. How, how do I be thankful for the fact that you were scourged and lashed and beaten and bloodied, nails driven through your hands and feet? And we'll talk about that in the next couple weeks. It's by realizing that we see in Hebrews 12 too, that it was because it was the joy that was set before Christ that he endured the cross. You get that? Hebrews 12 2, it was for the joy that was set before Jesus that he endured the cross. That in this moment, as a guiltless man is about to be sentenced to go and, and die one of the most excruciating deaths that man has ever thought of, okay? there was joy in his heart. For he was about to endure the very thing he came to do. To die, yes, but to redeem the entire world. To think that a man would experience joy for death set before him is a crazy concept. Again, too good to be true, I think. But that's the truth of the gospel. God, might you give us eyes to see more clearly how true this is for us. And then what that means. Can we go back to the last couple weeks of wake up, church? It's time to just love people. Right? It's time for the church to just say, all right, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lay it down in response to the gospel. Of God, you're so good. And there are brokenness and there is pain around in my city, in my neighborhood, my own very neighbor, in my house, in my own heart, and I'm not just going to be complacent. We're going to step in by the power of the Holy Spirit to see what work he might want to do because the joy that is now set before the church is to be part of the, uh, part of the redemption of the world as ambassadors for Christ. That is now the joy set before the church, that we would be the church in the world in response to the gospel and the joy that we receive from him. Now, I was, uh, I was on staff of the Jesus Film Project for a few years. If you don't know what that is, it's an uh, organization through Campus Creed for Christ. They make a movie, evangelistic movie, that they show all around the world, translated into thousands of different languages, okay? And it was very interesting because around the world, every time we record this film, there is a scene that is this scene where you have the crowd yelling, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And we make people get into a tiny sound booth and they have to yell this because we need it for the movie. And it was crazy because as we got through and started talking and getting the actors into our sound booth, no one wanted to say it. No one would say it. No one, I mean, they would say, like, hey, this is what we need. And we'd have it in their language, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And just yelling and all this, all this noise. And they all would just refuse to say it. Like We can't say this. We can't say this. And we said, you have to. You have to. One, because, yeah, we need it for the film. So people get the depth and the weight of what this moment was. And I said, but two, you have to. Because you need it. You have to because of what this moment means in the story, not, not in the movie, but in the story of your life, that if this does not happen, then we're all still messed up. And I'll never forget, I'm telling you like almost every place I went around the world, okay? Every single time we got a bunch of people yelling in a room, crucify him, there was, I'm talking just weeping. I mean, just like old men, young men, old women, young women, little kids we had to have in there. Everyone screaming, crucify him! And you take one step into the studio, you look in, and it's just everyone sobbing. And I remember that imagery, and how much it affected me then. And just thinking, man, these people—like they love Jesus—and they get the weight of what this meant. And honestly, I left the Jesus film in in two thousand nine, and came back to the states. And honestly, I feel like I've just kind of gotten comfortable. And I think I've lost some of this, like, the beauty of who he is and the pain of this moment. And I think it's because sometimes I still want my own thing. I still want to run my own life. And I still think that I see all the brokenness in this world and I just can't reconcile that Jesus could be that good. And I just want to call us to the reality of what we're experiencing. I want to call us to not forget the Bible and not forget that this story that we read is not just a story. It is the story. That for the whole world, regardless of whether someone believes it or not, the story of Scripture is the true story, the true narrative of the world. Lord, help us to have eyes to see this. Give us faith and love that we would know and see and experience and worship him more. That's my hope for us out of this. I don't think the church, and maybe it's just me, and I'm not saying just our church, the church, does a tremendous job at just being all that thankful. I don't think we do a tremendous job of truly reflecting on the person and work of Jesus. I think we're just pretty content in life. I think we're pretty good to just kind of stick with, yeah, he's, he's Savior. But the Bible calls for so much more than that. And so my hope for us today is that we would just have a greater desire for Christ. And the reality is this. There's nothing that I can say, and honestly, there's probably nothing you can do That's just going to make that happen. A desire and affection for Jesus grows when Jesus and the Holy Spirit cause the desire and affection for Jesus to grow. And so the only thing we're left with is prayer and worship. I think that's all we're left with at the end of the day is that we talk to God and say, please, I want a bigger picture of you. I want to love you more and I don't know how. I want to have greater affection for you, but I don't know how. I I want to love opening up your word, but I don't. Please, Lord, let me. I want to enjoy prayer. Like, I want to enjoy communing with you, but I don't. Lord, please help me. Because we cannot change ourselves. Lord, help us is my hope. That we would be a people who at least ask the question. And here's the final thing I want to land on today. This applies for everyone. Because when we look at this story at face value, we see this immediate exchange, I think, between Jesus and Barabbas. And so we say, well, I'm Barabbas, right? We get that. We're Barabbas. Jesus is substituting himself in for us. We deserved death and crucifixion. We deserved pain. We deserved all these things. But instead, Jesus steps in. He's the exchanger. He is the Savior that comes in and fixes this problem for us. But I think the picture of, we get, of what we get here is far more holistic. Because I think who Jesus is exchanging himself for in the moment is not just Barabbas. Because we do live on the other side of the story. We do live on the other side of the cross. And so we know he's not just stepping in for Barabbas. But he's stepping in for all of creation. That when he willingly stays, because listen, this is still Jesus, right? So at any moment... He goes full invisibility cloak and is out of there, right? Just disappears. He can do whatever he wants, but instead he stays. He willingly exchanges himself, not just for Barabbas, but for the whole world. And so I want to land with these four audiences. First, you have Pilate. Jesus is exchanging himself in that moment, not just for Barabbas, but also for Pilate. He steps in for Pilate's soul as much as Barabbas' soul. Pilate, to me, he's he's a guy who didn't grow up in church. He didn't have the experience of Christianity. He's a Roman official, so Judaism wasn't his thing. He didn't know anything about the Messiah, the Lord. He didn't know anything, really, about the Old Testament Scriptures. But in a confrontation with the living God, he began to see change. So some of you here are that. Some of your stories, like mine, I didn't grow up in the church. I I had no history of faith in my family. But then I had this encounter with Jesus, and he transformed and changed me. Some of you, that's your story. Some of you, God wants that to be your story. You showed up today, and you've you've been in church maybe one time in your life, maybe never before. You have no real understanding of anything we just talked about, but you're having an encounter with God, and you're saying, man, maybe this is it, and life needs to be changed. He exchanged himself for you. Okay. The second group is the religious elite, the chief priests, the Sanhedrin. These people are saying, I deserve God. Right. Pilate's saying, I don't know God. These people are saying, I deserve God. I've worked my tail off. I'm a good person. This is both in the church, out of the church. I'm, I've, I've earned it. Look at my life. Look at who I've cared for. Jesus steps in the place for the religious elite as well. He steps in the place for any who are here today who still think that you need to prove yourself to God. He's here to say, listen, let that go. You can't. I I tried to get the Jewish people to do it for thousands of years, and they failed. You can't do it. So stop trying and give your life to me because I stepped in and exchanged mine for yours. The third group, I think, is the crowd. And the crowd you have seems like a bunch of Jews who grew up knowing God, right, or being taught at least the things of God, had some type of understanding of faith, some type of understanding of the law of God. They sat in synagogues as we sit in churches. And so I think some of your stories in here is that you grew up in the church, but then you departed because culture decided to tell you it wasn't good. Just as the people sit here and are now screaming, crucify him. When they used to be the people who were longing for this very guy to show up. And so I think some of you, that's your story. You grew up in it. You know all the answers. But all of a sudden, culture has told you, this is better. Your life is better. So crucify Jesus. Be gone with Christ. Christ. Some of you, that was your story, and God, God has pulled you out of that and said, no, no, like, I'm good, I'm true, I'm faithful. Everything that you've known and heard about from the day you were born, that's all true. I am that Savior. And for some of you here, that's your story. And Jesus is saying, come on back. I exchanged my life for yours. And then the last group is, is the Barabbas group. Right? And this is just kind of the group, this is the group that says, I don't deserve God. Like, do you know what I've done? Do, do you know the brokenness? Do you know the trail of tears that I've left behind? Do you know the amount of bad and terrible decisions I've made? Some people are having that story. And God will say, well, No, I, I exchanged my life for Barabbas, that he could experience life and not death. And he extends the same invitation to those today who would ever say, I don't deserve him. He's too good, and I'm too bad. That doesn't exist. So we find in Christ, we find in this profound moment, and what's easily read over, is this incredible exchange where Jesus, the blameless, guiltless Savior of the world, substitutes himself for every person from every situation. There is not one person that cannot come that he has not invited, that he does not love. And so wherever you're at, if you're here and you're a Christian, and, and this one of these was your stories, and he's just saying, more, I want, I want more of you. Lord, help us love you more. Help us worship you more. Help us sing louder and prouder because of who you are and what you've done. And then if you're here and you're not a Christian, or at least you weren't when you showed up, He stepped in your place and said, You didn't deserve it. But I did it anyway. Because that's who I am. I am the God. I am the man who takes away the sins of the world and sets us now on mission to proclaim this gospel story to the city of Flagstaff, Arizona, to Tucson, to wherever you're going in Texas, to Chandler to the state of Arizona, to Guatemala. Like, we we go now, church, because this story is true. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much. God, I'll admit that I don't... Um, even times when I'm, I'm even thanking you, it's just kind of more I know to say it. God, it's, just, it's not often. It's not always. Just a reality of the posture of my heart that I'm just truly grateful for what you've done for me. God, you know my own brokenness and sin. You know the brokenness and sin of every person in this room and our kids' ministry that's walking in front of the orphan right now in the streets. God, you, you know every detail God, you knew every screw-up, everything we've ever done, and you still stepped in and exchanged your life for ours. That you took silently and quietly for the joy that was set before you. God, a people who used to, dis, <laughs> used to love you and, and seek you, With that used to want you, y'all crucify him. God, all we can ask for this morning is that we, at least that I would just not try and just try harder. I wouldn't try to just be better. But I would come to your feet, that we would come to your feet and just say, Lord, help us. Because we are sinful and flawed. We make terrible decisions. God, the good things we do, we acknowledge as your power and strength given us to do them. And God, we just ask that you would continuously do what you've promised, which is transform your people. God, to make us more like Jesus, to live in the image with which we've been created, and God, to leave behind all the pretense of we have to, we have to prove anyone to the left or right of us any different. God, we are all in the same playing field, and it's, it's broken and in the need of Christ, and we just celebrate this morning that then you came. We celebrate that we get to study the cross because we know what it secures for us. You know, we really celebrate because we know the resurrection is but a few weeks away. God, and that you are alive and active and powerful, and that the Holy Spirit is now on the move in our hearts, making us more like you. God, I lastly just pray for any who came here today. God, who were far from you, please, Lord, draw them near. God, we know that you are always present, always on the move. Aslan is on the move. God, that you are just... You are involved. And so, Lord, would you save today? God, would you restore today? Would you heal today? It's your name we pray. Amen. Uh, So now, as always, we just sit and we like to just reflect on God's word. And not just kind of let it pass us by as it so easily does.